Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, coming to you live from the Wasatch Mountains. Love that mandolin lead-in from Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. Thanks for that cut, and we'll be hearing more from them as the season goes on. Now, let me ask, how often in those long spring and summer days of quarantine did you dream of pointing the boards into a powder stash of the greatest snow on earth? I know that I did. Well, wait no more. The season is nearly upon us. Do you have your passes lined out? Did you get your skis and boards into the shop for the preseason prep? We have a great lineup of guests coming to you this winter on Last Chair, taking a look inside the Utah ski and snowboard experience with the people who make it happen. Before we get to our guests, a shout out to our good friends in the Heber Valley. With soft, fluffy flakes coming this winter, it's time to think about playing in the snow. Winter is magical in Utah, and Heber Valley is no exception. Heber Valley is a winter wonderland ripe for exploring. Hit the trails on a pair of snowshoes, follow the groomed tracks on some cross-country skis, snowmobile through the fresh powder, and see awe-inspiring midway ice castles. Warm up in the Homestead Crater or take a cozy train ride. Step off the slopes this winter and grab a warm meal at one of the delicious restaurants in town like Midway Mercantile, Lola's Kitchen, or the Back 40. I have to say there are some great restaurants in Heber and Midway right now. Check out the chicken sandwich at Lola's, my favorite. To kick off Season 2 of Last Chair, we have a fascinating guest. John Cumming grew up in Utah, igniting his passion for skiing as a young boy at Snowbird. Over the past two decades, he's turned that passion to one of the most recognized outdoor adventure companies, Powder. That's Powder without the E. More on that later. I've known John for many years, but it was a real treat to hear firsthand how he grew to love the outdoors here in Utah, developed a business acumen on the flanks of Mount Rainier, and honed his ski industry skills making snow and driving a groomer. In these days of big corporations in the ski business, John Cummings Powder is unique. It's a family-owned and operated company that includes Snowbird and the new Woodward Park City in its portfolio, along with great national brands like Killington, Copper Mountain, Mount Bachelor, and more. John talks about his philosophies of life and business, sharing the good and the bad, including the loss of his treasured Park City Mountain just a few years ago. Settle in for a very insightful look into one of the industry's most passionate leaders, John Cumming. Here we go with episode one of season two of Last Chair. And we're with John Cumming here today, the chairman of Powder Corp here at the Powder Office in Park City. And John, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So I, I know that the world's been crazy the last six months. How have you and your family been holding up through the pandemic period? Uh, you know, I mean, I think as well as anyone, <laughs> human beings like predictability, and there's been a lack of that in our lives lately. So, but it's been nice to spend time with the family and not travel and, you know, be in the mountains full time. It's nice. Now, you showed me your T-shirt earlier. What does your T-shirt say? This too shall pass. And it will. It will. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have a good wear. That's why I wear it. I look in the mirror every morning and I say, okay, <laughs> this too it shall will. pass. It will pass. Yeah, we're going to talk in more detail about powder, but I think to start, thing out, start things out here today, John, if you could just give us a quick nickel description of what powder is, and we'll talk about the formation of it a little bit later. Okay, we're a ski resort holding company. I think we're one of the big four ski resort holding companies uh, in the country. We're private, owned by mostly my brother and me. 
and Nicholas Padami, the grandson of my mentor. Um, we also have some summer camps and action sports facilities and a media company and an events business. Yeah, what's the media company? Outside Television. Cool. A lot of people probably don't know that. Well, that's a that's my bad, right? <laughs> no, that's, that's good. Wish, that's why we're here to tell I wish more bit. people subscribe. So anybody hearing this should subscribe to OTV, please. <laughs> Thank you for that pitch. Uh, John, I, I've known you for some years and uh, know a, a lot about your background and the passion that you bring into this. And one of the interesting things about Parter is it's really is truly a family-owned company, and there's a lot of family passion in it. Those roots go all the way back to your childhood. And I know that you moved here as a young boy, and the outdoors quickly became your playground and a time where you had wonderful activities with your father. And tell us a little bit about how you got introduced to the outdoors and developed that passion for skiing. Well, thank you. I, you know, yeah, um, my father was a Wall Street guy. He spent a lot of time, his whole life really, um, trying to build and preserve capital. Um, and as a result of that, he was gone a lot. He he would work and worked on Wall Street. I was he actually worked. He was going to Harvard Business School when I was born. Then he moved us to Tarrytown, New York, when he worked on Wall Street and um, made an investment in a company here in Utah called Terracore, um, real estate development company. And I think he probably made that investment in the late or mid early to mid seventies, um, and started commuting to Salt Lake City. Um, when I was a very young kid, three years old or so, he discovered that Utah was a really terrific place and a better place to raise his family. So he moved us here. My brother was born here. Um, and he, uh, lived here working on real estate development, uh, took us skiing at Alta the year before Snowbird opened. Um, and, uh, and then ended up reverse commuting <laughs> when he started working on wall street. But the point really is that when, when we were young, um, uh, my father ended up being a single parent, um, commuting to New York from Salt Lake City. Uh, we were raised by basically by a nanny. Um, and the only times that we really had the opportunity to spend time with my father was when he came into town on Thursday night from New York. And he'd scoop us up. We'd go to bed, pretend we were asleep, and scoop us up. Um, put us in the back of the car and drive us up to Snowbird, where he had a place in the, what's now called the Inn, but was at the time called Turamura Lodge. Um, and we'd wake up in the morning, he'd inevitably be on the phone to Wall Street, um, and David and I would slide on our, we called them, I'd have long johns, and my brother David had long Davids. We'd put our long underwear on, come out, Dad would have made us uh, breakfast, and but was on the phone, and and he he'd just point out the window and say, "I'll meet you at noon." And so David and I would grab our stuff. And two little kids, you know, he's let's call it four and nine or five and ten, and we'd go skiing at Snowbird all day long. Meet Dad at at uh, the plaza for lunch, unless that we saw the chalkboard at the bottom of one of the lifts that says, you know, John and David. You know, meet your father at three or whatever. No cell phones back no then. No cell phone, nothing, you know. And But but the but the community of Snowbird really helped raise us. The, you know, Ian knew Dick Bass well. My dad, Ian, knew Dick Bass well at the time. And so when he would call dispatch, they'd be happy to pass it on to David and I by writing the message on the chalkboard. Anyway, long story short, uh, 
the, the quality time that my brother and I spent together and with my father just had this incredibly indelible impact on me. And the contrast of that life to what I knew my father was living at the time as a Wall Street investor, you know, it was basically he was doing what, you know, the early ver an early version of private equity, you know, created a contrast to me that I still carry with me to this day. I, I believe that my life was incredibly enhanced in the mountains. I learned independence and mastery and family, you know, community and just an appreciation for nature. Um, and I really developed almost a resentment for that other model, even though that I knew that he was being successful and, and it was self-actualizing for him to make money and preserve capital. And he was being very successful from nothing and all that stuff. I, I set out at an early age not to do that. Did you take uh, your younger brother, David, uh, into some gnarly places uh, at Snowbird a few times? Yeah, actually, uh, Dad and I, uh, so I don't know, I don't remember how old David was. He was probably six. Uh, you know, this is one of these, this is probably a bunch, a conglomeration of memories, right? But uh, there's a run at Snowbird called Great Scott, which is right up by Tower 4, the tram. And it's got a cornice at the top of it that can be, you know, six feet vertical. Um, we skied it all the time because my father was fearless. If not a wonderful skier, he was fearless. And, and so David, by the time he was four or five years old, six years old, was able to ski that kind of double black diamond upper cirque terrain. And I'll just never forget the first time we took him in there, uh, I kind of scooched my way in. It was vertical. And I look up and my father's got my brother by the wrist and he's dangling him over the edge of the cornice and just sort of drops him about the last three or four feet. Uh, and we skied it and he shredded, David shredded it. I mean, he's always been a really good skier. We obviously both grew up doing it. And, and so, yeah, my, to answer your question, we went heli skiing when we were really young, probably too young to do that. We skied terrain at the Bird in Alta that was, you know, double black diamond. We shouldn't, we had no right skiing it. We, you know, dad for sure didn't have any, the ability or skills to do it, but he was fearless and we were together and it was, you know, incredibly life enhancing for me. And it's obviously been indelible. I've spent my life in the mountains. I've spent my life trying to share those experiences with others. Yeah. How did you get into climbing? You know, I had this weird contrast in my life. My father, who I loved dearly and admired, was a Wall Street guy, and I just didn't want to do that. Um, I, I loved my time in the mountains. I mean, everything, t I mean, the smell of the pine trees, the snow in the trees, the wind blowing snow. I mean, these were things, you know, frozen hair, uh, all of these strange, uh, I, I established these beliefs that, uh, these were life enhancing. They were life enhancing to me. And so uh, because of the, the way that our life unfolded, my father thankfully could afford to send us to boarding school. Remember, he was commuting the other direction by this time. And so we went to boarding school. We were preppies. I went to Kent in Connecticut. And that was cool, you know, played traditional New England sports, played soccer and hockey and road crew and did all that stuff. But I always had this you know, this sort of homing pigeon kind of instinct to get back to the mountains. So when it was time to apply to college, there was Boulder had a rolling admission. So I'm, I'm like a, I'm in my first semester as a junior and, and 
by the end of that, or maybe, maybe right after Christmas, my junior year, I'm already early enrolled into Boulder. So I'm back to the mountains. I'm in early, you know, I, I had skied in Colorado a little bit at the time and I was just, you know, I mean, I was talking about the homing pigeon, uh, instinct. I just couldn't wait to get back there. So when I did, I moved to Boulder, went into the Arapahoe dorm, uh, and promptly got a, a bumper sticker on my Jeep, uh, that said, ski now, see you later. Oh, great. <laughs> and so I, you know, uh, I have a, I actually framed the report card from my fall semester, my sophomore year where I flunked out of school. Cause I was at copper and Eldora and climbing in Boulder Canyon and spent all my time in Netherlands, uh, and just, and, you know, in Estes park and camping and climbing and skiing. And so it was quite clear that college wasn't going to work out. Um, one of the things that my father had done while he was raising us in the mountains was take us climbing a few times. I climbed the Grand Teton with him when I was a little kid. Was he a climber? No, he was just a, he's, he was just a loon, you know, he's just a, he was just an adventurous, you know, ADHD hyperactive guy. And he, you know, so we did do lots of great adventures. He just wasn't around enough. And that's sort of part of what happened with me is like when he was around, we did these cool things in the mountains and then he'd be gone again working. Um, but we did do these great adventures and we, we climbed the Grand Teton when I was 11 or something. Um, we went camping a lot, went down the Virgin River, I remember rafting. Um, and so this all created that homing pigeon instinct for me. And so I got to Boulder, I'd spent all my time in the mountains, didn't spend enough time in class. It was quite clear that that wasn't going to work out. We'd met a guy named Pete Whitaker, who was a guide at uh, um, Wasatch Powderbirds at the time. That's when I met him, heli skiing on one of these adventures with my father. He was a guide on Mount Rainier. Um, he and dad cooked up a deal where we'd go climb on Mount Rainier. We climbed a few mountains together, actually. And I just fell in love with it. Um, and by the time I got to college and had been doing some climbing in Colorado, I felt like maybe guiding was the answer for me, or at least something that I could enjoy and probably be better at than school. So... Uh, Pete helped me try out and for and get a job as a guide on Mount Rainier. And, um, and so I did that for six or seven summers, um, skied in the wintertime and climbed mountains in the summertime. My father and I, uh, climbed some stuff together. Did you climb Denali? No. Oh, Denali. Yes. In fact, I was just going to say, I thought you were going to say Everest. Everybody says you climb Everest. And the answer is nope. I was a member. We'll take it in stages. Yeah, I was a member of a couple expeditions and never worked out. One time because of cowardice. I was just like, oh God, I don't want to go for three months. But, but Denali was on our circuit. I guided there a few times. And one of the times um, was my father. Uh, he had asked us to take him up the mountain. And, uh, which we did, I hired, I found a couple of guys that are old friends that were members of the strong back, small brain club. And we took him up Denali and we got snowed in at 14, which is a big camp at 14,000 feet. We were, we were, we were hanging out in tents for a while. Actually. Yeah, it was, at, it was at 14 and, um, we were eating peanut M&Ms and watching the tent blow and between, you know, when you're, when you're 
being snowed in like that, you periodically have to dig yourself out. And then you just go back into your bag and sit there for a while. Anyway, long story short, we're in that sort of mode for a few days. And and he said, uh, John, you know, I really admire your having followed your passions into the mountains. And I, and I just think it's amazing. You're, you know, you're a senior guide, you've been successful climbing, you've sort of made a name for yourself in this world. And it's so different than anything I would have done. And I just want you to know I'm proud of you, son. And I was like, well, um, thanks. That's cool. And, you know, it means a lot to me, dad, but you know, I'm tired of being broke and eating ramen <laughs> three meals a day when I'm not on the mountain, you know. And so I said, uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about it. I didn't know how to do it exactly, but I wanted to see if you could help me figure out a way to be um, enterprising and outside at the same time. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we get these uniforms every year. Um, they were North Face uniforms at the time. We'd get mountain jackets, and we'd get a pro form, which we'd fill out feedback on. And uh, every year I'd fill out the same feedback. They're hydrophilic, so you'd get wet. Um, the waist uh, belt of your pack digs into the, to the drawstring at your waist, and you get bruised. And they're heavy and, you know, the sleeves are too long and they don't ventilate and, you know, and every year I'd get the same shit back. And so I said, dad, I really think that this is something that I could help change or, or maybe we could figure out something to do in the outdoor, you know, garment or equipment business. And he said, great. I mean, I'd love to help you do that. Go find a deal. And I didn't really know what that meant, but we got back off Mount, Rene Mount McKinley and Denali and we went to, I went to guide on Mount Rainier and I convinced this guy, Joe Hariski, who did the scheduling for RMI at the time to let me go to the Reno outdoor retailer show. Um, so I show up at the OR show, skinny little emaciated climber dude with raccoon eyes, sunburned. You first know, trade show. First trade show, yeah, of many. Um, and I met it and I met with, I actually had, you know, 47 cocktails with a guy named Skip Yowell, who was one of the founders of Jansport with whom I'd climbed Mount Rainier a couple times. By that time I'd probably climbed Mount Rainier 25 or 30 times. I was a senior guide, maybe 40 times. I don't, I don't remember, but, um, and Skip had been involved in Jansport. The North Face was for sale. Uh, Moonstone was for sale. Sierra Designs was for sale. There'd been a roll-up of a Hong Kong garment business buying a bunch so of these outdoor, you know, one of the one of the Gore-Tex sewing and seam sealing companies had bought a bunch of these outdoor businesses and paid too much and was going broke. And I was trying to figure out how to get a line in on on that. And I knew Skip knew everybody. And finally, after you know the eighth cocktail or whatever, he's like, "Okay, just you know, please." leave me alone, let me go to bed, I'll introduce you to this guy named Jack Gilbert, who had played basketball at Stanford. He's like 6'8", big bushy mustache, been in the industry forever, not a climber, you know, a businessman, been successful in a really difficult cutthroat kind of industry. He was trying to put a group together to buy Sierra Designs. And Skip did what he said, 
you know, called Jack the next day. Uh, and, and I ran into Skip at the Jansport booth and he said, all right, this guy, Jack Gilbert is, has agreed to meet with you, show up at the Sierra Designs booth at whatever, 11 o'clock. So I do, and Jack's in a sport coat, this big tall guy with a big, you know, he's had white hair already at the time and a big bushy mustache and this skinny little emaciated climber dude comes in with an outdoor retail briefcase that had nothing in it, except for a couple business cards that said RMI guide on them, you know? And I'm like, hi, are you Jack? I'm John Cumming. And he looks down at me and he's like, you're John Cumming. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Skip Yowell's a mutual friend. He said he would introduce us. I'd really like to talk to you about acquiring Sierra Designs with you. And he's like, really? Uh, I could tell he was incredulous, but as being a nice man, he said, all right, come on back. So we went back in the back of the booth and we sit down. And I basically said, I have no idea how to do any of the business that you do, but I do know good shit when I see it. And what I'm wearing now, guiding on Mount Rainier, two or three climbs a week or four climbs a week sucks. And so I think that if I could get in the industry, I might be able to make a difference in that regard. And I wanted to buy Sierra Designs. And my old man is wealthy. He can help us figure out how to finance it. And somehow Jack was like, I don't know. I haven't ever asked him. He was either impressed with the audaciousness of that or the ridiculous, absurd, you know, aspect of that or something. But he said, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. You know, fine. Introduce me to your father. And I said, really? Shit. Okay. And that's awesome. Let's do it. So we got on the plane at the NOR show. I'm abridging some of this. We flew to Salt Lake City. My dad had this big, I think you, Tom, you may know the office down in Salt Lake. It's the one next to the governor's mansion. So dad's in his suit and that stately manner. It's like going into a museum or whatever. And we go in there and, and, um, and Jack says, listen, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, John seems like he has some ideas about how to make good equipment. He says, you got the money to help us buy Sierra Designs. Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to hear you out or something like that. And then dad, who did deals for a living, you know, and Jack sort of spoke Portuguese for a little while. I didn't have any idea what they were saying. And they agreed to some construct that would allow us to together buy Sierra Designs. Um, fast forward, it didn't work. They sold it to somebody else. But at some point along the way, one of us, and none, none of the three of us remember who did it either on a conference call or in a meeting, we just said, why don't we start from scratch? And, you know, we said, well, that's a, probably a pretty interesting idea. By that time, we'd established a relationship. Anyway, very long story short, that's when Mountain Hardware was born that very day. So it was born out of that aborted sale of Sierra Designs. Yeah. And who were your partners in that? Jack Gilbert and Paul Kramer, who was the, who's sort of, you know, like I, I personally believe every organization has a team. There's usually, you know, in this instance, Jack was this, you know, bigger than life leader, you know, deal making, commitment, relationship, brand guy. And Paul Kramer was the brains behind all of the shit that he had to figure out how to design, source, and build. And so the two of them were our partners. Um, they were, we controlled it and dad helped my brother and I finance our piece and dad and David and I basically had control, but they had the operating control. Um, and, and so Paul would fly to Hong Kong and source the stuff and do the design. He hired a, a couple of really terrific people to do designs. Uh, we came out with the first windows and tents, 
Uh, that's a guy named Martin Zemitis, who I think is still making tents. Um, and the whole thing, you know, just by some miracle of, you know, good fortune worked. And, and you were able to provide the input that you felt was important to develop more quality gear? Well, there's, there's a guy, one of my best friends in the whole world, a guy, yes. So the answer is yes. What I provided was almost like a dogmatic belief in what good equipment looked and felt like. Like, and I had enough influence over the design process that, you know, if they wanted to come out with a poncho and put the nut on it, the logo on it, because that's high margin stuff and it could sell 80 jillion, gajillion units and create some working capital. If it didn't feel right for the brand, I had enough influence to say, we're not freaking doing that. We don't build ponchos. Yeah. We build stuff that guys like I would use in the mountains. Oh, and by the way, this is my friend Ed Vister's who already was, I, you know, he wasn't a superstar yet, but I'd climbed enough with him to know that he was going to be. Did you climb with him on Rainier? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Many times. I don't know. I mean, we guided it together. I don't, I don't know how many times. And I talked to him. We talked to him last night or the night before or something. He's one of my best friends. Our kids ski race together. I love the guy. He's like a brother. So, so, so I had the influence to say, we're not freaking doing that. That's cheesy. That is, you know, that doesn't, serve our purposes of creating what I believe to be a, a, a purely conceived of and executed brand strategy. Um, and so they, that limited our ability to do ponchos and things, but it also, I think really, you know, created brand equity accretion more quickly than maybe we otherwise would have done. And then I got a bunch of athletes that I knew were going to be studs. And Ed was the perfect example. I mean, he was destitute and not destitute. He was broke, couldn't finance, uh, the climbing aspiration that he had at the time to climb all 14, 8,000 meter peaks without oxygen. I knew he quite clearly was the best climber in the world at the time, or at least I believed that. Um, he was like the next Reinhold Messner, and it, but it was also clear he wasn't going to lose any toes or anything doing it. And he's such a badass and such a great guy and so dedicated to the craft or whatever. So I called Ed one day and I said, hey, we're starting this thing. Will you endorse us? And he was literally like laying on the floor of his apartment or something trying to figure out how to finance his next <laughs> expedition. And he, he you know... We both were playing it cool with climber dudes, you know, whatever. We're both playing it cool with each other. But it was the answer to both of our prayers. I was like, I can only pay you 25 grand. <laughs> he was like, holy he's shit. Only there, 25 there's, grand. Yeah, there's my, there's my freaking expedition is what he's thinking. And he's like, oh, yeah, I think, yeah, okay, maybe I consider that. And so I hang up and I'm like, holy shit, our brands just got launched. Because I knew Ed was going to be, I mean, he already was the badass. I mean, I'd climbed with him enough and seen him perform up, up high or, you know, Mount Rainier's not super high, but heavy loads relatively up high. I mean, I'd climbed with him enough to know he was not human. And that ended up being right for us and our brand, and it ended up working out really well for him. Did he take you guys to Everest, your brand to Everest? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a big part of it. It's, yes, he, we had this uh, line called the 8,000-meter line. You know, we'd make these big puffy 700 or maybe even 800 power down filled suits for him called 8,000 meter line, the Ed Beaster's line or whatever. And he climbed uh, Everest and he, I think he climbed all of his 14. Well, I think a last few, uh, uh, on the last few, he had maybe severed ties with 
with uh, Mountain, Hardware. Mountain Hardware by the time. I don't remember exactly, but the early uh, climbs that he did were fully sponsored by us, and he, you know, would take a little flag to the summit with a mount with a Mountain Hardware nut on it, and he wore all the logos and all the gear. That's quite a brand. Yeah, you know, it was. Uh, I've had the good fortune of being involved in a lot of stuff. Um, you know, time flies, Tom, but, I, but I've been at this a long time, you know, almost 30 years I've been doing business. Uh, and of all the things I've been involved with mountain hardware, which we sold because our partners wanted to harvest and we didn't want to force them to stick around if they weren't, you know, it, it just didn't feel like yeah. it was consistent with the original aspiration of the brand. Um, and the team that we'd created to do it, you know, um, but having sold it and having built a house with the proceeds and, you know, and, and moved on in my life to other things, I can't think of anything else that was more satisfying than that. Yeah. Now, how did you transition from there into the ski area business? And you, you actually worked in that business for a while too, didn't you? Yeah, so there was, you know, it was contemporaneous, really. Um, while we were working on Mountain Hardware, it was pretty clear that uh, unless I wanted to move to Berkeley, which I thought seriously about doing, <clears throat> there, there wasn't really a full-time gig for me. I could be the Rocky Mountain rep, which was a really unfulfilling exercise, like some random climber kid comes into the... to, to you know, Nept Neptune Mountaineering in Colorado or to uh, White Pine Touring here <laughs> meets Charlie Sturgis and says, hey, I got this stuff. It's really cool. You know, I wasn't well received. Let's put it that way. No reputation. I didn't know the shtick. You know, I didn't, it, you know, they, they quickly showed me the door. We needed a proper Rocky Mountain rep. It was quite clear, therefore, that the role I was going to play was help with the brand, help with the design, help with... Uh, athlete endorsements, help with that dogma about the kind of product we would build or whatever, but it wasn't a full-time job. So one Thanksgiving, uh, give or take, in probably 1992 or three, two, probably, we were up in Park City for some reason with my father and me and I guess our whole family, I don't know. And I got out of the car on Main Street to go to whatever restaurant we were going to, and I smelled that smell of the fall in the mountains. And I was in a place in my life where I was reckoning with the fact that I didn't want to be a climbing guide, but that, you know, mountain hardware probably wasn't a full-time gig. But I got out of the car, and we're standing in the street, and I was like, whatever I do, I want to smell that smell. And Dad said well, why don't you go do it? It was another one of those, oh, that's a great idea. Like, come on, let's, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, freaking be an entrepreneur, like figure it out. And we talked about it over dinner and for a while afterwards. And he um, and I uh, somehow cooked up the idea to call Gordon Strawn, who knew Nick Badami, whose son Craig had been killed at the World Cup at Park City Ski Area at the time and sort of make the suggestion that uh, our family might be interested in investing in what was at the time called Alpine Meadows of Tahoe Inc. It was a public company, kind of quasi-public company. 
that Nick, you know, had, I think, had aspirations to transfer onto his family. Um, and, you know, the, for reasons which I'm frankly a little bit embarrassed by now, because it was a little audacious to say, you know, your plans for these assets didn't work out and we're sorry. Um, your family suffered a tremendous loss, but maybe we can be the surrogates, you know? I mean, in retrospect, I don't think I'd do that today, but at the time I felt okay. So Gordon Strawn made an introduction um, and Nick to his, you know, to the credit of his deep character agreed to meet with me. And so I showed up against silt skinny little climbing idiot, you know, and, and explained that I wanted to smell that smell and be in the business in, in the mountains. And I was really trying to do something where I could be enterprising probably I didn't really know what that meant, but I wanted to be successful and outside. Um, and Nick said, all right, well, we'll put you in a management training program, which basically just meant making snow and stuff and butts and grooming. And, you know, he supplemented my whatever the hourly wage at each department was by like, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever and, and called it a management training program. And I started doing all those things. I worked in the race department. I worked as a groomer. I worked in lift operations. Uh, I worked as a reservationist in a cubicle with the head, you know, headset on. Park City Ski Holidays. You know, and 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 for two years, that you know, I was still in this sort of no man's land of I didn't know if mountain hardware would work, but I didn't feel like that was a full time job. I didn't know what the hell I was doing you know, with this management training program, because Nick was of that old school where you like drop the kid in the deep end and see if he surfaces. Yeah. So I never saw him, never heard from him. Every once in a while, I'd get a memo uh, from his office, um, from Ellen Pedro, who was his assistant at the time saying, move, you know, show up, you're moving from snowmaking to grooming, show up at this place at this time. So I'd start driving a groomer, swing shift. Tell me, th John, driving a groomer, yeah. that just seems so cool. It is awesome overnight, you know, in the dark of night. And I have fond memories of that. I was, I have fond memories of that. The, uh, it's a real skill. I mean, those guys are skilled operators and I think they're underappreciated, frankly. Oh, yeah. The machines are getting to the point where they're so amazing that, uh, it, I don't know, I haven't driven modern ones. Well, they're a lot more comfortable. They're a lot more comfortable. They got Recaro seats and Blaupunk stereos or whatever with 12 speakers. And, you know, they have auto float on the blade and on the tiller, whatever. But it, and so they're still artists, don't get me wrong. And it's, yeah. it's still a long night in the dark, but and I, did, yeah, it was. Did you meet your wife, Christy, during this time too? <laughs> kind of. So the first time I laid eyes on Christy was at the World Cup at Park City when I was on the race department and the women came to race and she did pretty well. For those who don't know her, she was on the U.S. ski team and one of the best slalom skiers in the world, really, in the early 90s. She's a badass. I mean, she, uh, she you know, I mean, she's my wife, so I, I don't have probably an accurate... She was good. Yeah, I mean, she had... So you should see her knees are so scarred. She had a congenital ligament problem or something she would blow her blow her knees out mid-run you know 
She won a U.S. Nationals slalom, uh, and she blew out her knee like the third turn into the second run and finished it, stood it up, won the race, went straight to Dr. Stedman. So she's a badass. I, I, I watched her race on TV. I, I watched her race at Park City. I didn't really meet her until we had completed the transaction. She was working as the ski celebrity, kind of, or one of them at Park City at the time, doing women's ski challenge, you know, clinics. Uh, I met her doing that. And she, so she came into the office one day. I was there, you know, sitting at my desk trying to figure out what it meant to be an executive. And there's Christy Turgeon. And, uh, you know, I made a fool out of myself that first day. <laughs> yeah, but it worked out. It worked out. I want to read a, a quote that's on your website and talk a little bit about the formation of Powder. So you've, you've acquired these resorts and uh, you start this company called Powder. But I, I really love this uh, quote. It says, we're in this business because we believe the adventure lifestyle brings meaning and purpose to people's lives. That's really what you're about, isn't it? Absolutely. So how did this, how did this start to come to be, this company, Powder? Well, you know, the, those, those, uh, those experiences I had with my family, in contrast to the rest of my life, which at the time was, you know, broken family, absentee parenting, raised by nannies kind of thing, um, really showed me how, you know, or I should say, enhanced my life to such a degree that I've just never been able to forget it. And it, and it led to me dedicating my life to smelling those smells and feeling those feelings. And, and as I, you know, as I got older and we got more fortunate, uh, I, you know, I just have been fixated on trying to share that with as many people as I could, as many families as I could. I always wondered, uh, powder for those who know the company is spelled P O W D R. There's no E in it. How did you come to that name? We were in one of those long conferences. Again, I didn't know anything. I was, you know, still skinny climber dude. And Nick had agreed to this surrogacy kind of mentorship. Um, but he was basically running the transaction. And I was just watching. And, um, but I showed up at the closing ceremony with Nick as the seller and me and powder, me and it was called merger company at the time um, as the buyer and their lawyers scurrying around in stacks upon stacks upon stacks of documents you had to sign. You know, it's one of these, I don't, you know, they don't do it this way all the time anymore, but a giant conference table with 20 chairs around it and the, and the people signing uh, do like a musical chairs around the table signing stacks of documents, but we walk in and people are racing around trying to get the final documents on the financing package together. And Nick and I walk in together and this lawyer corners us and says, look, we need a name for this deal. Like merger company doesn't work. It's like the new baby. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. George. It's like the new said. baby. What are we going to call him or her? And so I didn't have any idea. Right. I mean, I was an infant in business and Nick was already successful in a couple careers and Jesus, I looked at him and I'm like, I have no idea. I haven't put any thought into it. Actually, what came to mind was how about American Skiing Company? <laughs> well, which hadn't been taken yet. Seriously? You thought of that before I did. Les Otten I did. did, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, yes. 
I don't know if it was American Skiing Company, but Americans, yeah, something. Yes, that's what came to my mind. And I looked at Nick and I said, what are we going to call this thing? And the lawyer's standing there. And Nick says, how about powder without the E? And I said, cool, why? And he said, because that's what was on Craig's license plate when he died. And I was like, done. Like, I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes to this day. I was so honored to do that. Uh, and I was so honored that he would offer it. And it just, the whole thing put such a resounding exclamation point on both of our intents. You know, I wanted to keep the, the company private, family owned, which is what Nick aspired to do, I think, with Craig. I wanted to honor Craig's legacy. Thankfully, I didn't know him. Um, and I mean that thankfully because I, I could live up to an ideal uh, without having had the burden of like specifically trying to aspire to be like him. You know what I mean? It was an ideal. It it just it it just made everything suddenly sort of come together. And so we looked at the I looked at the lawyer and I said powder without the e. Right. And and then we went probably fifteen or twenty years before I told anybody how we got that name. You know, it's funny because I have heard the story now, and I always wondered. And when I did hear the story, I remembered Craig's license plate. And it's just a, it's a, it, it is a great story. You know, I, I often tell people that we are living in the best age of skiing ever right now. We have amazing opportunities with the transformation that has been made with what Vail Resorts has done, with what Altera has done, what Boyne has done. Powder really is a different company, and as good as everybody is in their own unique way, the family aspect that you've been talking about here, John, it really does ring true with Powder, doesn't it? I hope so. We, we talk about it in terms of there being objective value and subjective value. And I've been using that lexicon to make decisions for a long time. But I think in recent history of skiing, meaning the last three or four or five years, we're seeing more and more of the decisions that people make with their ski dollars, given that it's cheap everywhere, including a kind of a, a subjective value of where they want to spend time and who they want to spend time with and who they want to transact with and why, where they live and how they raise their family and whatnot. And so, um, you know, the opportunities that have, have arisen with cheap passes have been difficult for some of our resorts in the industry to, to accommodate. There are areas we have limited capacity for sure. There are, you know, traffic problems just, you know, are obvious in both Summit County, Colorado, and here in Wasatch Front in Utah, but, and elsewhere. Um, but, uh, but I believe that people will and already are making decisions to transact with people and communities that they feel valued by. And I'm hoping that that family feel and that community feel will provide some subjective justification for people to choose our resorts. The uh, over over the years since you formed Powder in the uh, in the mid '90s, you've been successful in acquiring acquiring resorts all over the country. Here in Utah, of course, uh, uh, 
we're going to talk in a minute about what you've done at Woodward. We'll talk a little bit about Park City and Snowbird. While I know it's technically outside of Powder, it's still managed as a part of the family. But, but you have some real crown jewels around the country with Killington and Copper and Mount Bachelor, along with some nice little small areas like Lee Canyon and, 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 uh, and Boreal. It's uh, quite a combination. Well, thank you. I mean, from the very beginning, Nick used to call it the rubber tire, biz- the rubber tire market. He, he really laid the groundwork, if you will, for my thinking about this kind of community gem, subjective value proposition. And I think he was more practical about it. He thought the rubber tire business was a way, a place where we could expand our company through acquisition, um, which is really the only way to expand by much in the industry in that space because the the real premier destination resorts were always going to trade really dear. We couldn't, we didn't have enough capital to be playing in that game. But if we did a good job and we operated efficiently and we provided good value to families and we were good stewards of those community gems, we thought we could uh, sort of establish a beachhead there. And I think right now, given where we are with COVID, I think it's proving to be a fortunate position to be in. People aren't traveling, but people are going to want to be outside. They're going to ski at their local place. They're going to ski with their local club, their local team or whatever. They're going to bring their families. Um, And they're going to, you know, they're going to brown bag it in the parking lot like the old days. And I think our, I appreciate that. I, I like our position in that regard. I think that's the, I mean, that's how skiing was established. I mean, that's the vibe that made skiing great. And I think that's, I'm, so, I'm super proud to be part of it. You know, as we record this in early October, uh, the season's still a little bit away, but are you seeing positive signs in your season ticket sales around the country? Yeah, almost everywhere. Surprisingly so. It is surprising, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> you know, I mean, think about it, though. I mean, what we're seeing right now in October is uh, right, right or wrong, people are, it's not like we have predictability about disease spread and mortality rates or, or you know, it's not, like we, it's not like we all have clinical understandings about that. But we do, we have established, I believe, in these communities that, being outside with our family is a nice consolation prize. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> and so, you know, what we're seeing in our season pass sales is a kind of a, I think, an extension of that belief into these mountain communities. It's like, you know what? Kids may be online and that sucks, but guess what? We can go skiing on a Wednesday afternoon. And so even though our resort company has chosen to reduce capacity in in terms of the numbers that we'll accept, um, there are more days where more people have more opportunity and they have more evidence that that kind of outdoor activity as a family is safe or relatively safe or more safe than going to a movie or a concert for sure. And so I think what we'll see is as, as there's some evidence you know, as snow materializes or doesn't in whatever region in the country, I think we'll see really solid demand. I personally believe that it's our responsibility as operators to start with the aperture pretty tight 
and then open it if there's no problem. Um, I don't want to, our company has chosen not to open wide and sort of pray that we don't have an outbreak. And we've chosen to do the opposite. We're going to curtail our capacity. We're going to do it via reservations. We're going to limit you know, access on parking to limit the headcount on the, on the hill. We're going to limit, you know, common area, indoor commissary type stuff. And we're going to, and we're going to hope that new information demonstrates that that doesn't create any spreading events. And by spring, I'm hoping we're wall to wall. Um, we'll see. I, like I said before, I think the demand is there. I can't wait to go skiing. Oh my God, Tom. I mean, this has been excruciating. Like I adjust my psyche sliding in the mountains. I mean, I suck at it anymore, but I still use it. Like it's the most uplifting thing I do in my life and always has been. And we were like screaming along. Everything was great. Skiing was awesome and whack. The whole thing stopped. Yeah. I, I, you know, for, for me that as the resorts started to accommodate the COVID situation in March, it was kind of depressing because that personal connection of the person next to you in the chairlift was all evolving. And I got kind of really depressed a little bit and then it, ka-chunk, it just stopped. And this summer, I just wasn't really looking forward to it. And then all of a sudden I started to hear these little signals that People were buying season passes, and I, you know, you get the letter from the resorts that would say, "This is how we're going to do it." And all of a sudden, I said to myself, "It's possible. We're going to be able to do it." And now I think there's this wave of optimism yeah. that you're going to see. Uh, I hope you're right. <laughs> there I, is to I me. hope so too, <laughs> uh, John. I want to talk about community, and I know that that's very important uh, with with all of your resorts. And I know you from this community here in Park City, and I've watch what you've done in helping to start the Park City Community Foundation to help to give back to causes. I've watched what you've done with uh, Copper Moose Farm uh, on your property and you know trying to grow organically and, and give back. Talk a little bit about the importance of community. You're a businessman, a business leader, but community is where your people come from, and that's important to you. I, you know, I've, I've always aspired to leave my community better place than I found it. And uh, I got that from my father and from Nick. And I've always felt some responsibility to pay it forward to the extent that I could. And um, so with that backdrop, you know, I mean, these, these destination communities have lots of opportunity but we don't have a lot of dedication and commitment. Um, I'm not, I don't mean that as a value judgment. I just mean we have a lot of transient you know, visitors coming through who value the place um, or they wouldn't come, but they don't value the place like we do and they don't have any perspective on what the community might need. So I had this value that I wanted to make sure that um, when I'm dead and gone, the place is enhanced by having had me present, you know? Um, and I've been very fortunate in spite of some scars, you know, I've been fortunate. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure that the place that I raised my family, met my wife, raised my family, built my business, um, was benefited as much as I did from my presence, you know? I don't know if that makes sense, but that's been always been the aspiration. I, I just feel like you lead, try and leave the world a better place than you found it. And 
the world will be a better place when you're gone, you know? So that's why I did it. The Copper Moose Farm, um, I mentioned how important Mountain Hardware was to me and powder has been my life's work. But of all the things I've been involved in in my life, the Copper Moose Farm is by far the most satisfying. Um, it does not pay the rent, uh, but it, it does a couple things that I think are really meaningful to me personally. They like, they like, they're an expression of my values. You know, I believe in climate change and having suffered a chronic disease, I believe that nutrition is probably lacking and maybe plays a role in some of these chronic illnesses. I was at a time in my life when we founded the farm where I was cursing the darkness on both of those things. We had the sort of Damocles of climate change. We had, you know, nobody could tell me why the health issues that I were, you know, what was triggering it and how to fix it or any of that stuff. I just knew that. And you have, you have MS. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with MS I don't know, a bunch of years ago, 2000, um, 20 years ago. Um, and all, and all, and so instead of just cursing the darkness and sort of bemoaning my situation, and you know, I said I got a freaking cursing the darkness is a waste of time, right? My dad used to say, "Don't curse the darkness, light a freaking match." So I'm like, "All right, got it." So we eat tomatoes that are shipped around the world, covered in first of all, they're dyed, covered in wax, put on a ship. Transported half the way around the world, burning bunker fuel, creating toxicity in the atmosphere and the seas, and providing no nutritional value to the people that eat it on the other end. And so I was like, what can I do to combat those two things? They're very personal to me. You know, we have a lot of money invested in there being snow, emotionally and objectively, money-wise. I have a lot of investment in staying ambulatory as long as I can and not being blind. And so I said, this is a way for me to take some action on both of those things, which are so important to me. And I felt like, and I feel like the farm affords families an alternative on both scores, climate change and nutrition which I think are two very unpredictable aspects of our existence going forward. So it's a super idealistic deal, but again, I was just feeling badly, scared, frustrated, angry, and that was taking me nowhere. So I said, screw it, we're gonna do this. Yeah. And we did, and now it's it's been amazing. I mean, it, we don't, it can afford to buy its own tractors now <laughs> after many years. It's, it's been interesting. I mean, just living in Park City to know that you can go to this farm stand and you can get this great produce. But I think what else it's done, to your point, John, is it, it really has educated this community about this. And there's offshoots of it growing up uh, around us. So you did really start something there. I know that during COVID, uh, you had... Uh, 
nearly a dozen of your resort communities around the country that all of a sudden your employees are out of work, the community has lost this revenue, and you you had this, and I, I think you had this program ready to go, but we're able to really bring it to the fore during COVID, your Play It Forward program, and and really being able to support the needs of the community despite the business loss that was occurring this spring. We have had this climate change, carbon footprint, watershed, you know, et cetera, environmental program called Play Forever <clears throat> as part of our brand. It's something that we've been trying to perfect for many years. And it's, and it's a kind of a posterity kind of a thing. We want to make sure that, and I mean, given that we're primarily in the ski business, it's important that we... <laughs> that climate change doesn't put us out of business, right? So we want to do our part. We're not afraid of being out in front of that. Like we don't want to, we don't have any interest in not acknowledging that it's going on and doing the best work that we can to, to provide examples for others, you know? So, but you're right. I mean, all of a sudden we furloughed or laid off 6,000 people across the country and we devastated these communities. Um, we were talking earlier about how athletics and business demonstrate the tiny fraction of a difference between success and failure. And if you, if you shut down a community, a mountain community that may or may not be, you know, some of these communities are kind of fringy, their economies are kind of fringy and you take not just a fraction, a single digit percentage out of their revenue or their economy, but you take 30% or 25 or 30% out people are going to be struggling. And so I was really sad about our going from what was going to be an objective record by far to a 40% reduction in our cash flow year over year or something like that. I was really more concerned about the people. So, so I believe back to that construct of objective and subjective. You know, you can't not be objective-minded when that's what you need to do. So we laid people off because we had no choice. We laid as few off as we could. We, we cut as, as shallow, if you will. We excised as little excess tissue as we could because we're a private company and we could afford to. But we had to excise the tissue. And, and, and that left communities without the basis, you know, to survive potentially, or at least I worried. I mean, think of Nederland, Colorado, for crying out loud. You know, and these are places that are not like vivacious e economies. You know, I, every state that we that we work in, this was a move. This moved the dial on some folks. So, I, so while I was trying to be objective-minded about what was important was to make powder survive, I was really troubled by the impact I was having on the people who had signed up to work for or with us in the communities in which we live. So thankfully, we were in a position, my brother and I, to do some philanthropic stuff to counteract that effect. Um, I've had involvement in community foundations. I believe that they are a very efficient model, maybe not the best, but the most efficient model that I've found to direct funds to a community where the need is most acute. Um, and I thought this might be an, an opportunity for us to establish some communities relationships, community philanthropic relationships 
for our resorts that maybe would benefit them for over time. So we used that play forever model and we established the play it forward fund, which was, um, you know, intended to provide resources to these communities and to the people in them that, that were most deeply affected by the resorts that we closed. Um, you know, it didn't come close to filling the hole in the gaps that we created by doing what was objectively the right thing, but subjectively incredibly painful. But we thought that it was the right thing to do for these communities with whom we work and with whom we play and with whom we raise our families. Um, I wish it could have been 10 times the money, frankly, but we did the best we could. And I think it moved the dial. And I think, as I said, it established our presence in those communities in a way that when the next COVID comes, which hopefully will be another hundred years, <laughs> right? But whatever comes, there's a mechanism for us to support. And I, again, I put that on the subjective side of things. Objectively, we're gonna run the hell out of these resorts and do the best we can to make them as profitable and self-sustaining as possible and enduring as possible. But we can't do that without health, healthy, vibrant communities you know, in which we live, we can't do that. And so subjectively, we've got to make sure that we're doing everything we can to leave them better off than we found. Well, I think as a family run company, you have that opportunity, which is very fortuitous for, for these towns and villages around the country. Just one more thing on, on community before we start to wind it down. I know that uh, nearly a decade ago, uh, you had a small error that here at Park City Mountain Resort that resulted in big error. It was a big well, error. Well, small error with big impact uh, that resulted in you having to sell the company five years later. And John, we don't need to rehash the kind of what happened thing, but as a leader, you know, and, and having a company that was really pivotal in the community, you know, as you look back on that, what are your thoughts? Well, um, you know, I regret it. I regret it deeply. I was, uh, it was a difficult period of time because I was playing a role that, that was inconsistent with my values as it relates to my community. We were committed to playing a pretty hard game there and that was gonna damage the community that I value so much. Um, what I remember most about it though is, is that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it was kind of, it may have been I mean, we've been using that construct of objectively, objectivity and subjectivity and the balance of those two things for a long time. The logo of powder is a fulcrum and it implies balance, right? And so it's the objective subjective balance, it's the life work balance, it's the you know, environmental versus, versus prog progress balance. I mean, in, in life, what we need is balance. Um, but I think the, the Park City debacle and pain on our on me personally and on our family and on our community to some degree and to our company you know really benefited us because it was a it was a real clear example for me anyway of that balance like you got to do what you got to do sometimes like if you but if you're going to be a capitalist or a businessman or a leader or an entrepreneur you got to play that game, you know, and, and you should still find balance, but when you're playing that game, you play it. And that's what we did. 
Did some of that lead to what you did at Woodward? Yeah. Well, the Woodward Park City. I mean, Woodward Park City. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if that hadn't, if the whole, whole Park City thing hadn't happened, the Woodward Park City wouldn't be so big. You know, there was part of me that said, screw it, I don't care. I want to build the biggest, baddest thing we can see. It was, a, it was my own little ego Phoenix rising kind of a thing. You know, was it justified? I don't know. We'll see. COVID has screwed that up for the short term, maybe the medium term. We'll see. I mean, but I am proud as hell to be involved in that. I think it's a huge enhancement to the community. You find me a kid in town who wouldn't enjoy spending a day doing that. Um, and so, like I said, I, I'm not sure. Yes, the Park City lawsuit led to that. Would we have done it? Yes. Would we have done sort of like what we did in Lake Tahoe? More than likely. Would we have done what we did? No freaking way. Um, and so, yeah, so, and I'm quite proud to have done it. Uh, all things being equal, I would have done the same thing. Meaning if we had sold Park City and in some other circumstance, I'd have done the same thing. Yeah, so those two things are related. For, for, for me as a ski historian, I was excited to see it because there's a long history at Gorgoza and even going back before then as uh, uh, Parley's uh, Summit Ski Area. In fact, I don't know if you know this, John, but there were two or three ski areas along that whole uh, uh, southern side of what is now I-80 that were operating all the way back into the 20s, uh, some of the first skiing in the state. And it's just great to see Gorgoza, now Woodward Park City, rising up and to see the lights and to see the kids just having a great time out there on snow. Thank you. I mean, it's, again, there's subjective value for me in that, but um, I, w I went to Woodward, Pennsylvania many years ago before we acquired that company. <clears throat> and I walked on, to, and I was like so re re resenting the trip. I didn't want to get into summer camp. Some good gracious, we're ski guys. You know, it's hard enough. What the hell are we doing here? Finally, I was convinced to go, and I walked onto campus, and I see these children in rapture. You know, I mean, absolute fixation and, you know, with like ketchup on their T-shirts and sweaty as hell, smell like, I mean, animals and completely fixed and dilated on what they were doing, working on whatever trick or whatever, you know, activity they were doing with their friends, you know, in this in this sort of very secluded part of Pennsylvania. And again, I had resisted going, uh, you know, for for you know, three or four weeks, finally, I'm like, all right, fine. If you'll leave me alone, I'll go check it out. And like I said, I walked in, I took one look at those rapture, that, those faces. And I was like, if we can figure out how to do a fraction of that on our mountains, in our ski schools, on our, and, and by the way, extrapolate that gymnastics based progression process into what we do in action sports on the mountain, a fraction of it, we win. Um, and so what we're aspiring to do at Woodward Tahoe, Woodward Copper, Woodward Park City, and on our mountains in our, through our ski schools is sort of, sort of take that and put it into the expression that kids and young adults experience on the mountain. Like that rapture is what I experienced as a kid. It really, you know, as I, I, I was going to come back to you to close out with this big philosophical question, but you've answered it throughout this. And, you know, to me, what you're talking about at Woodward, it's it's what your dad Ian used to do with you and David and scoop you up uh, in bed in Salt Lake and take you up to Snowbird to have the time of your life the next day. Yeah. I mean, I believe that those young people that we share that experience with, 
will never, ever forget it. And their life will be enhanced, like mine was. It will. So we're going to close this out. Wonderful discussion, but I've got this section we close out all of the podcasts uh, here on last year with called Fresh Tracks this year. And this is going to be four, five, six questions, simple, no trick answers, uh, just uh, learn a little bit more about you. You know, John, as a climber, you have done many routes on Rainier and Denali. But if you think back, what's that one route you've done that you're most proud of? The West Buttress on Mount McKinley is the most beautiful climbing I've ever done. There's also, what is it, the north, I guess it would be the northwest rib of Ilimani in Bolivia. Also beautiful. Taking it back home, your favorite restaurant dinner when you and Christy want to go out for a nice evening? <laughs> uh, well, that's kind of a trick question in this town. Um, yeah, there, actually, there... you really do get put on the spot with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have a favorite restaurant uh, in San Diego that we go to called Spica. Awesome. <laughs> and what do they serve at Spica? It's an Italian fusion kind of modern. Love it. Yeah. Um, Mediterranean stuff. So John, you're a very focused businessman. You have a passion for the outdoors, but setting that aside, do you have any hobbies? I love to fish. You do? Yeah. Fly fishing? Uh, no. My vision is been affected by nerve damage. So I, my, I think it's because I've spent my whole life in the mountains. Mm -hmm. I love to go offshore and fish like where you can't see the brown part, like way offshore for Marlin. And you drive around for a day or two and you don't see anything. And then you catch a giant fish. And that's, I just love that. Beautiful. I, I wrote a story earlier this summer about Andy Mill, former U.S. ski team downhill racer. He's a world champion tarpon fisherman. And that was just Bone fascinating. fishing, tarpon, yeah. yeah. just fascinating to hear about that. Uh, your favorite musician? <laughs> My brother would make fun of me. Actually, I think Sting. Awesome. Can't go wrong there. Your favorite ski run in Utah? Regulator Johnson. Can't beat it. Last question. Groomers, groomers powder, glades, or moguls? You used to be powder as I get older, groomers. <laughs> groomers are just fine. John Cumming, it's been a joy to have Thank you, you uh, kick off this season of last year. Thanks for sharing your story and your passion for skiing. Thanks for including me. I hope you enjoyed that look into the world of John Cumming and powder, a great Utah story. And a big thanks to our episode one sponsor, Heber Valley. Great to have you on board this season. If you enjoyed the Last Chair podcast, hit the like button and subscribe in your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back with plenty of guests over the coming months. To wrap it up this week, take a listen to Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys with Ski and Party off their upcoming album, Utah Made. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair. See you on the slopes very soon. Well, you can ski and party if you don't ski and party. Until I can't ski.